Oh man, this was a good time, man. I wish that I had your military knowledge without actually being in the military. I wish I, I could find some way to walk both ends of that rope. Well, just do like the Matrix. Remember when he just he uploads how to learn Kung Fu? <laughs> <laughs> I know Kung Fu. I know one five zero five degrees down bubble. I know what it means. You just reminded me. So at the beginning, you're talking about Constantine, right? The movie Constantine, and we just talked about Keanu Reeves. First time I saw the movie Constantine, I was in Hong Kong. And every time I go to movie theaters, I like hot dogs, right? I just love getting a hot dog in the movie theater. And we go there, and we go to the theater, we get some food. And I was like, yeah, I can have a Coke, and can I have some uh, hot dogs? And the girl behind the counter was like, we don't have hot dogs. I was like, that is so un-American. She's like, this is Hong Kong. I'm like, I am so sorry I just said that to you. <laughs> Yo, Falsetto, what's your favorite line and scene from this slick flick pick? There is a couple of scenes of dialogue in Crimson Tide from 1995 that I absolutely fucking love. It's Of course, it's in the trailers, which sometimes I don't care for the things that are in the trailers. But in Crimson Tide, I love when Captain Ramsey looks right at Denzel Washington and says, God help you if you're wrong. So then Hunter says, if I'm wrong, then we're at war. God help us all. And then I love the dialogue where Captain Ramsey says, do you agree with that policy, sailor? Absolutely, sir. We're here to preserve democracy, not to practice it. And apparently, the former FBI director, Mueller, he was often uh, cited for saying that, that same phrase throughout his career, which was, we're here to preserve democracy, not to practice it. So that's kind of crazy. And then lastly, I love the exchange where it's Captain Ramsey and the great actor who plays the chief of the boat. So Captain Ramsey, Mr. Cobb, yes, sir. You're aware of the name of the ship, aren't you, Mr. Cobb? Very aware, sir. It bears a proud name, doesn't it, Mr. Cobb? Very proud, sir. It represents fine people. Very fine people, sir. Okay, you get the idea, but it's really fucking awesome. And then I had some contender lines where Captain Ramsey is going to his quarters and he says, short of the outbreak of World War III, the ship sinking or being attacked by a giant fucking octopus, I like to be undisturbed for the next 30 minutes. And then Hunter, I'll see to it, sir. I love the dialogue in this film and the dialogue has to be great because they're in such tight quarters and there are stretches of time where not a whole lot of shit happens. So I love the dialogue in Crimson Tide. I think it was very clever and it moves the plot along. And then my favorite scene is hands down when Gene Hackman loses his fucking temper with Denzel Washington and he just tells him to shut the fuck up because things will never be the same after that moment. That is the catalyst in the film. That's when things really start heating up. You know his rage is boiling. You can see it on his face, but it still remains smooth and subtle. And when he does vocalize his perturbation, you believe it. Commander Admiral Adam, my very special guest today, who has a lot of real-world experience with this sub shit, what is your favorite line and your favorite scene from this slick flick pick? I think my favorite line, because I can relate to it, is this very small line when uh, a Washington's character, Tinkerman Hunter, uh, they're trying to restore all the comms, and uh, the guy, the technician, his name is Vossler, he's talking to him about, hey, you know, do you understand what's going on? He's like, yes, sir. He's like, no, I don't think you do. Explain to him. He says, I know it's a shitty deal, but you've got it. You know, pretty much, pretty much saying, like, hey, everything's on you. That's just how he said it. I was kind of, I'd make you chuckle every time because I've been told that plenty and plenty and plenty of times. And then you said a lot of good scenes. I think a lot of those scenes are pretty, pretty, I like them as well. They're on my contender list as well. The, uh, the lines, you know, when you said we're here to preserve democracy, not practice it. Another contender favorite line would be Lieutenant Commander Hunter when they're in the wardroom at the beginning. He said, war is a continuation of politics by other means. So I thought that was pretty good, pretty good line also, what he said. But one of my favorite scenes is just a kind of a funny little snippet where after Tenet Commander Hunter gets done boxing and working out, he's up there and, uh, you know, the weapons officer is sitting there ironing 
spring everything, you know, ironing his socks or whatever. He's Whips. like, I figured, yeah, Webb's, Webb's is ironing stuff to talking about, you know, how the captain is, whatever. He just kind of, at the end, does a Washington's kind of chuckles and goes, you do pants too? It just, <laughs> it just, I don't know. And being on a ship for a long time, like all this, all this stupid shit happens and then you just find comedy in something very small, like, hey, you do pants too? Oh, that's one of my favorite scenes. Just want to think about it. Right. And it's always a good movie when it actually takes a minute. It gives you some pause where you have to discern what that favorite line or scene is because you have at least a handful to pick from. So it's good shit. Before we cinematically, theatrically swan dive into this sterling, stirring introduction, allow me to first gift an indelible shout out to Hermann Tress. Thank you, Hermann Tress, all connected on Instagram. Not only did Haley, aka Hermann Tress, Keep my Kimohawk Mohawk looking clean, dapper, and fucking pristine there at Wavelength Salon on 9th Street in Durham, North Carolina for a shit ton of months, but she's also a fan of Kimohawk Sessions and offered some very supportive words on my review of Constantine, my premiere episode of Slick Flick Pick. Thank you, Haley, for your warm words and support. If you, cinematic fanatics, are in need of a new look and want to feel like a new man or woman, head on down to Wavelength Salon or check out Hermann Tress on Instagram, as one of her many talents is, in fact, hair coloring. Enjoy, Cinematic Fanatics. Also, I'll take this moment to tell you that while one of my good comrades, Wham Bam Cam, has his own show, Audible Ally, he, in every episode, leaves a kudos acknowledgement to the men and women of the American military force. And I don't do that every episode. I just mention it, just like I mentioned things about how I feel for cancer patients for obvious reasons, but I'll tell you, man, I'm really glad that Brother Adam is on today, and he is a good example of someone that I've known since I was about nine years old, maybe maybe longer than that. He knew that he was going to be in the military since he was about six months old, and he, <laughs> he, he is living that dream, and he's going to retire with billions of dollars to his name. And when you don't see something every day, sometimes it, it, you're kind of distanced from it mentally, but you're a good reminder of... And I know that not everybody in the military is a 100% stand-up person. I know that. They're just normal people like the rest of us. But you are a good example of someone who's one of the most decent fucking people I've ever known, and you're in the military. So I don't know if you give the military a good name or if the military is just lucky to have you. But either way, man, I'm very appreciative of what you do and how busy you are. There you have it. Appreciate it. You got it, man. Greeting cinematic fanatics, allow us the pleasure of ushering you through the cramped corridors of the claustrophobic, cramped, tightly packed, stinky, foul-mouthed, sardine wannabe marine man both active and asleep in their respective racks, where one old sea dog holds the key to unlocking a global nuclear radioactive mass extinction killing spree. The other speaks softly, subtly grandstands, punches bags, speaks Silver Surfer speak to deckhands and subverts command in the depths of this deep crimson blood colored underwater chapter of Slick Flick Hick, an entertaining Slick Flick explaining series, a desirable diversion from the main vein of Kimohawk Sessions. You are our cinematic fanatic. We, your worthwhile fucking cinephiles. For your 21st episode. Oh, see, you know what I just thought of? 21 gun salute, right? Do they still do that? Uh, yeah, we, uh, well, they do that, um, in that, like, big old, uh, ceremonial events. They still do a lot of, uh, funerals, but yeah, we still have the 21 gun salute. 
So the 21 gun salute would often be accompanied by a folded flag handed to a loved one, right? Yeah. Okay. So that, wow, I didn't think about that, but 21, 21st episode, 21 gun salute. There you have it. I, Falsetto Prophet, your Chemohawk Sessions commander and Admiral Adam, my loyal mutiny free XO, and I review a wave splashing, reef scraping, hole crushing, sonar ping resounding, pulse pounding, explosive confrontations abounding, 90s action suspense thriller. While the ship boat sub is submerged, we remain on a combat knife's edge ledge of the verge of a nucleus fission fusion holocaust, which would no doubt come at the steep cost of hollowing our human bodies the fuck out. I have adored this film since my first youthful blockbuster rental viewing. My father, once Hackman spoke of high school girls with foul language, said no, but I waited and rented this flick again behind his back so he wouldn't know. This slick flick was lauded critically and applauded financially. It remains unclear if the audiences favored Denzel's face or the Crimson Sea. This is a slick cinematic experience that touches a trinity of genres. Action, suspense, thriller. It transitions so seamlessly between genres and off simultaneously in such a way that you process it as a simple study in filmmaking sleekness. In case we forgot to mention, this wartime flick ratches seaworthy tension with a suspense flick pick it requires of disbelief sustained suspension for if you are to enjoy this tony scott treat you should pay attention and you just might be rewarded like captain ramsey with a fat fucking pension we offer you a deep dive review of the alabama's deep seafaring crew where one man knows just what to do and come descent death or sailor fucking destruction We'll see it goddamn through. Crimson Tide, circa May 1995. In the affairs of stubborn men, there lies a bloody tide. Their emergency action message remains fragmented, severed, and the core of the message it does allied. To grasp the truth, they must sacrifice or they must surface topside. Recline, cinematic fanatics, in your favorite well-worn stale chair. Rustle up some popcorn, fresh as F-stars the antithesis to that stale-ass chair I just mentioned. Zoom in and zone out as we unwind the daily grind with a slick flick pick. Crimson Tide is the flick, so very slick, hence my F-Stars pick. When slick flick pick is near, stick around, till Falsetto Prophets and Admiral Adam's voice you hear. Lights, camera, action, lens distraction, and with the right slick flick pick, grant satisfaction. I'm your worthwhile cinephile. You are my cinematic fanatics. Together, we excitement unlock and run down the real world's unimaginative clock while feasting our eyes on this slick flick pick prize. Enter with us, you cinematic fanatics, into the realm of film's fantasy as we unwind the grind of reality. We offer you pick 21, slick flick pick, mutiny mimicry, nuclear as a bell, sir, Crimson Tide, 1995. Today, we'll discuss why you should always initiate an inactive drill during an active fire, how being dead wrong doesn't translate to a liar, when duty and dedication clash, you should loyally conspire, and who to pray to when you seek a launch termination and small arms cease fire. Your worthwhile cinephile, falsetto prophet, and Adam. So this film, man, so you watched this when you were a kid, and you're watching it now, like in the last 48 hours. Yeah. Does the movie hold up? 
take into account that this is 1995, right? You know, I, I wouldn't, I was only 11 years old when the movie came out. So I wouldn't really experience the military, you know, life. But now looking at it, there's, I see so many things that are just like, that kind of funny, you know, especially being in the Navy, seeing how they portray stuff a little bit. It's just, I kind of, I laugh at it now, especially when I watch military movies that, you know, any type of modern military movie, just how they dress or what they say, how they act. I find a lot, a lot of flaws in it. Okay. So give me one example of something that this film did right. And something that they totally fucked up on. Let's see that they that they did right. For instance, the ribbons right there when they were in their um, khakis or they're just blues or they're they're white. They have the ribbons. I mean, those are pretty standard. I sit there and analyze them, and you know they put the ribbons in the correct order or whatnot. But when it comes actually when it comes to movies and any type of modern day uniforms, there's always a military liaison on set to make sure that they are presented in the best way. Right. Um, there has to be a little bit of a mess up, a little bit of uniform infraction in order to be legal i guess you can say the word i forget the exact how they put a wordage but before this navy navy movie there was a there was a navy liaison officer on set to make sure that their uniforms were portrayed the best and that they weren't kind of all jacked up but they can't be 100 percent correct i forgot what, exactly why but one of the first things in the movie is when Cobb, the chief of the boat the, pretty much the command master but a submarine's going to chief the boat is sitting there doing your doing your favorite speech if you look at his combination cover there's a gold band on the top of the brim and but he's a chief like I am. We wear certain ones. It's not that thick and gold. Officers do. Ours is more of a uh, slider, a slider uh, black one. And uh, he's wearing gold ones. So that was first thing I noticed when I started watching it. And just uh, certain things they do. They call it the. Uh, so when Gene Hackman tells them to uh, after he takes back command of the ship, he tells them to take Denzel Washington and everyone to the officers' mess. We don't call it officers' mess. We call it the wardroom. Okay. Uh, even says even says on the on, on the door says wardroom. If you look at it real closely. <laughs> How about that? Yeah, I mean, that, that definitely sounds more appetizing than officer's mess, right? It's like, yeah. like what did the officer poop his pants or something? It's funny because you say that because uh, they say the officer, the wardroom, right? But for the chiefs, chiefs and above, we say the chiefs mess. So, you know, I eat in the chiefs mess. And then the E6 and below, the junior guys is called the cruise mess. Um, <laughs> sure. So, so in the Navy, when you say the messing, it's like the messing is like we eat at. Right. The mess hall, right? Yeah. Yeah. Is there a, even a whole crush depth? And is it 1,850 feet? There is a crush step, and it's, very, it's it's designed per class. You know, right now we have, we have, to have different classes: the Seawolf class, Virginia class, Ohio class, LA class. You know, improved 68 class, and uh, they each have their own specified crush step. They're they're pretty deep, but um, off the top of my head, I don't I don't know them. The only thing I've heard in fairly recent news about submarine activity was one thing I heard was there was that American sub that had a whoops moment and scraped some reef, and that caused a shit ton of damage to the sub. Does that ring a bell? Mm, was that within like a couple years ago? Yeah, I, it might. I can't remember exactly. I feel like it's fairly recent, but I heard about that one, and then I heard, of course, about uh, a Chinese sub. No, it might have been a Russian sub that we had lost um, comms with, or we had lost. We were we had been tracking it, and then we we briefly lost for maybe like a week or two. Well, I guess that's not briefly. That's like an eternity. But I remember hearing. But I guess that happens all the time because we're always in deep water or international waters, and they're always in international waters, and. It's still like an ongoing chess game, right? Where everybody's monitoring everybody is the bottom line. Yeah, uh, we're monitoring everyone. Um, I can say to the um, to the unclassified version of it, uh, several years ago, the Russians came out with a new submarine, and uh, we didn't know the capabilities of it. And then when we found it, we tracked it, and we lost it. Yes. And, and we had to pull our assets out of the area, and we lost it for a substantial amount of time. And then we picked it up again and, you know, went back home. So just like any, 
anything that gets built, the first one, you know, it's a prototype and then they find out the issues with it. And then, you know, they built, they, they build another one with, with all the corrected issues. So the first one is on, in uh, the Atlantic fleet of Russia. And the second one is going to be in the Pacific fleet. And that's where I'm going to be stationed at. So that's what, uh, for me, that's what, that's my number one threat priority. <laughs> interesting. That's interesting, man. Now, is there an American name for an American sub that's as badass as fucking Akula? Because Akula is a pretty fucking awesome name for a Russian sub. So what's our coolest class name other than Akula for Russia? Well, ours is the Virginia class. Okay. Um, so, Virginia. Yeah, we, I mean, yeah, we name ours. They have like a naming convention type thing. So for some reasons, um, they're traditionally either, either uh, named after cities or states. But it used to be a city would be a fast attack and a state would be a ballistic missile. You know, like you have the Los Angeles, you have the Houston, you have the Honolulu, those would be fast attacks. And you have the Ohio, the you know, Alabama, those would be uh, boomers. And then, but now they have the Seawolf class and Virginia class. And actually, fun fact about the Seawolf class, the second one or the third one, I think it might be the third one. Second or third one was actually named the Carter. He had the, the uh, Carter, I believe, because he was, uh, when he was president, he was a Samaritan, sorry, sorry, when he was a naval officer, his first command was on, uh, they, uh, when he first joined was on the USS Seawolf back in, uh, World War II era. So that's why the Seawolf class, one of them is named after the former president. Wow. Well, man, if you have a say in it, please allow one of the new classes one day to be named the fucking Kraken class. Cause the, the Kraken, Kraken, class. The Kraken would be fucking awesome. Like I want to see a Kraken go toe to toe with an Akula, but I know that the Akulas are old school, right? Like they, they probably stopped Akulas altogether as of like 20 years ago or something. And they stopped making them. They still have a couple in service. They're, uh, the Russian military, uh, overall, they don't really have that much, um, newer stuff. I mean, they built a new submarine and, you know, they've had recent years, they, they built a carrier and, you know, but a lot of the stuff is old. And, uh, the Russian mentality of warfare is they throw a lot of numbers or a lot of metal right. at you. Right. So, you know, us, we can shoot, launch well, like one Tomahawk missile and blow something up. Their idea is they launch, you know, 40 or 50 conventional missiles and hope to hit something. So that's the way, that's their mentality. They're, they're thick armored, have a lot of firepower, but not as uh, accurate as we are. Sure. Now, aside from Russia, who? What's another country that has pretty sophisticated um, submarines? You think of one? Mm, China. Oh, okay, cool. I guess they like sophisticated as in like they have the old, old ones too, but they're they're building some. They're getting a little better, you know, with everything going on, especially like you know the whole balloon crisis. Like, oh my god, we're shooting down balloons. Yeah, I mean that's been going on for a while, like just balloons. But you know, with the tensions, they they predict with the next you know five six years of a, a conflict, you can say with China, and uh, they predict. It's going to be a, a underwater ASW war heavily. So, I mean, that's my job. So that's where I, that's where I get to go play. Have fun. Could have, I could not have asked for a better guest for Crimson fucking Tide. That's for sure. So what about Japan? Does Japan have a pretty um, impressive submarine fleet? Uh, submarine? No, they have, they have old diesel. I mean, I say old, they have diesels. They don't really put that much, too much money in uh, submarines warfare as opposed to their surface fleet. Cause they know is if something happens to them, if they ever go to war, we're, we're like their big brother. We're going to back them up. And that's okay, our, that okay. kind of our, our agreement with them. Well, I did a little research because I did not know the answer, but according to Andy Wittry for NCAA.com, how did Alabama get the nickname Crimson Tide? Now, this is the University of Alabama. Alabama has dominated football across eras with 16 national championships from the 1920s to the most recent in 2020. They also have one of the best nicknames in sports. But where did Crimson Tide come from? Well, former Birmingham H. Herald sports editor Hugh Doc Roberts is credited with giving Alabama its nickname according to the University of Alabama Athletics website. After watching Alabama and rival Auburn play to 6-6 tie in Birmingham in November 1907, Roberts reportedly described the game as a crimson tide. The phrase crimson tide 
was a fairly common descriptor back then in regards to life or blood, often in the context of war or poetry. Now, that's fitting because this film, Crimson Tide, there's a lot of philosophical dialogue, right? About like, like you were saying, the quote from Von Clausewitz and just probably the art of war and some other things where these soldiers are really dissecting from a philosophical perspective, you know, what does war mean and what is the end game and all that. But where things get interesting is that neither the words crimson nor tide appeared in this news story from the Tuscaloosa News, which means either the Tuscaloosa News didn't publish Robert's entire story or that they unknowingly left it out. But Crimson Tide would ultimately become the nickname for the team. For these reasons, the following of Alabama accepted the verdict as a virtual victory and Auburn admitted a virtual defeat. And there can be no dispute of the statement that the magnificent resistance and fierce aggressiveness of Alabama surprised none more than the Auburn team itself. And prior to the adoption of the nickname of Crimson Tide, newspaper accounts from the early 1900s called Alabama simply the Alabama football team. Okay, dude, that's lame. That is a lame fucking name. Crimson is way yeah. better. Do you, <laughs> do you watch a lot of college football? Uh, not, not necessarily. I know a lot of guys out here. So earlier this year, they were, we have a lot of uh, college football fans in my mess. So we'd watch it. And every time, like, there's Auburn. We had a couple of big Auburn personnel. We also had a bunch of uh, Alabama personnel. So it would always be funny just to hear them yelling at each other, like, as if they're playing the football game. Right. Like, no, nah, man, you're, like, you're 40 years old. You're not a running back. Like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I figured you guys would probably be playing football in the aircraft carriers and shit, you know? Big enough, but like, it's that definitely you don't want to, yeah, too windy and you don't want to fall on that shit. That's non-skate. That'll scrape your ass up. Crimson Tide is a 1995 American action thriller film directed by Tony Scott and produced by two of my favorite people, Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer. It takes place during a period of political turmoil in Russia in which ultranationalists threaten to launch nuclear missiles at the United States and Japan. The film focuses on a clash of wills between the seasoned commanding officer of a U.S. nuclear sub, Gene Hackman, and his EXO, or his executive officer, Denzel Washington. Now, the story parallels a real incident during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Now, Adam, are you familiar with that story that they're alluding to? I actually know. That's actually news to me. Okay, and then Hans Zimmer is a great, great composer for these films. He, uh, Hans Zimmer also did Gladiator, for example, but he won a Grammy Award for the main theme. Now, you, you just know when you're in a Tony Scott film. I mean, Tony Scott, it's always the same thing. It's badass music. It's soldiers standing in the rain. It's a lot of action. It's a lot of suspense. You can just feel a Tony Scott film. So Tony Scott also brought us Top Gun, which I'm sure you love. Oh, and yeah, yeah. Beverly Hills Cop 2, Days of Thunder. That's another Tom Cruise flick. The Last and Boy Scout, which is one of my favorite Bruce Willis action films. Days of Thunder. Uh, a lot of people know that John C. Riley's in there as a serious actor, not a comedian. Yes, yes, he is. And so is Cousin Eddie from Griswold's Family Christmas. The same guy is in that, is in that too. Yeah. And uh, he also did, of course, um, True Romance, Enemy of the State. That was a great movie with Will Smith back in the day. Mm-hmm. I like that. Uh, fuck, he made Spy Game with Brad Pitt and Robert Redford. That's a great one. Man on Fire. Everybody loves Man on Fire with Denzel Washington. This guy is a fucking awesome director. Now, I didn't even know this, or maybe I'd forgotten. But on August 19th, that's actually very close to my birthday, 2012, mm-hmm. He jumped off the Vincent Thomas Bridge in the San Pedro Port area of Los Angeles, and it was either a drug overdose or a suicide. It, it's kind of up in the air, but the cause of death, multiple blunt force injuries, and there was a lot of drugs in his system, and it's pretty fucking crazy ending there to a good director's story. But apparently, uh, Tony had been fighting a lengthy battle with cancer, a diagnosis the family elected to keep private during his treatments. And in the immediate wake of his death, yet mentioning his recovery. 
So yeah, that's a sad end there. But uh, we're not here to talk about death. We're, talk- we're here to talk about how Denzel Washington keeps us all alive in this flick. It's a great cast, man. This film, top-notch cast. Denzel Washington, Viggo Mortensen, Gene Hackman, James Gandolfini, dude. Tony Soprano himself is in this. And I love the cast. And it's just under two hours, so it's the right length of time. And man, it made some money. So $53 million budget back in 1995, which is probably a lot for that time. But you got $157 million return. So you figure the budget with advertising was probably closer to $75 million. So that made almost a $100 million profit. So I'm okay with that. I have this question, man, that only you can answer. I'm so fucking confused. In the film, Cobb is called Chief of the Boats or Cobb. And yep. yet, Captain Ramsey says on more than one occasion, I'm the commander of this ship. Give me that goddamn key. Okay, bro. Is it a fucking boat or is it a ship? So every commission warship or every, you know, support ship, whatever in the U.S. Navy is, is a USS, right? United States ship. That's what it stands for. However, some Marines are referred to as boats. And, you know, the destroyers, cruisers, carriers are referred to as ships. Um, so they, uh, that's why he's called a cob, chief of the boat. He's like the, he's equivalent to, um, he's pretty much a command master chief. So on service fleet, we call, we call ours CMC, uh, command master chief. And on submarine, he is a CMC, but um, there's just chief of the boat. So he's the highest enlisted uh, person on the submarine. And a little theory behind why they call it boats versus ships is it, whenever you're, you've been in a boat before, like a regular boat on a small plate or, lake or whatnot. Yep. All right, so if you're going and you turn to left, which way does how does your how does the little boat on the lake lean? How does it, how does it lean? It leans to the left if you turn left, right? Well, yeah, it leans into it, right? So if uh-huh, you turn yeah, left, yeah. inside turns left, right? If you're on a ship and you go and you turn left, the boat is going to so the ship is going to turn to the right. It's going to lean to the right as it turns left. Right? Okay, okay. So that's 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 one way we just in a way we distinguish between a boat and a ship. A boat will lean into the turn. A ship will lean out of the turn. Does that mean that when they're um like when they're on the sub, okay, so when he when he's turning the helm, does that mean that he would be cranking it in the opposite direction that he wants oh, the no. the submarine to turn? No, you still turn left. It still turns left. The rudders turn left, but just the way it, the dynamics of it, just the momentum of it, because a boat in a way, boat in theory is smaller than a ship, so the small smaller the craft, you know, it, it would turn in. Just how you turn, you you can't turn in, right? Have you ever ridden a motorcycle? If they're yes. between like a boat, a boat and a ship between a motorcycle and a car, so a motorcycle, you turn left, you lean left, you know, to turn right. Yep. Yep. On a car, if you turn left, the vehicle kind of, you feel yourself kind of leaning to the right a little bit just because the, the momentum of the car. You, so the wheels turn left, but you kind of lean it out, outboard of it, you know, out of the turn. Interesting. It sounds like if you, even to understand how the Navy works, you have to be a fucking physicist. That's, all, <laughs> that's, that's awesome. No, I like that. That's good. That makes sense. And, um, but yeah, I was just like, I'm like, the guy's chief of the boat. He's commander of the fucking ship. I'm like, you know what can make life easier for everyone? Is if a sub was just called a submarine and that was it. Like it was its own class. Whatever. I don't think I'm going to change any minds, but that's, that's what I think. It just, it would make for an easier understanding in the film. Do you think this plot is reasonable or do you think it's just completely fucking bonkers? I think it can, it can be reasonable in regards to like say a nuclear attack, but even if you take away the whole nuclear, nuclear attack aspect for just getting orders, right? So, you know, submarines, they only get, when on the way on deployment, they only come up every so often for communications, right? They can't send radio columns while they're underwater. So they have their orders to go do X, Y, and Z, and they go underwater and to go to execute X, Y, and Z, and then they will, they'll come up. They have, they have a pre-authorized comms check windows where they have to come up for a certain amount of time, you know, designated time to come and receive and send communications, and then they go back down. And that's delineated in Zulu time, which is another you want to talk about. So we'll talk, to, we'll talk about that here in a second. Six, seven years ago, off the coast of Florida, a, uh, a submarine missed its comms window because the comms window got changed and they thought that they had received it. 
So when the submarine didn't come back up, at the expected Cosmo, there was a search and rescue effort to go out and look for it because there was a thought we had a, a lost U.S. submarine. Turns out when the submarine came up, they realized that like, oh hey, what's you know what's going on? And like, yeah, we're looking for you. I'm like, oh well, we're coming up at our at our scheduled time. It got changed. The submarine didn't know that it got changed. They go on the way to execute orders. Pretty much, if they don't get any updates on the orders, any full updates, they'll execute. Pretty much, we have a saying, "I'll execute your last order first. Yeah. Meaning- so, and and that's why I think the implication with this film is, even though Denzel Washington's character is portraying a very articulate and temperate character, I think the underlying premise that makes this so intense is that Gene Hackman never really acts that crazy. Like he's he's following mm-hmm. the last confirmed order that was given to want to follow that order. And I guess where it gets a little dicey is Gene Hackman does not seem to be particularly concerned with getting the surface level or wherever they need to get to get more information. He seems pretty hell-bent on following the last order. Yeah, I, I think that that makes sense, right? You, you can only follow orders that were completely confirmed and uh, what are they, validated, whatever the term, whatever the military term is to say. Lawful. Authenticated, authenticated. Yeah. Well, so here's some interesting, you'll probably know about all this, but in 1993, the United States Navy, aka Adam, brother Adam here, allowed studio executives researching the movie, like you were saying, to embark aboard Trident submarine USS Florida from Bangor, Washington, with a gold crew. Those embarked included Hollywood Pictures president of production, director Tony Scott, and the producers. And while on board, the Navy allowed the film crew to videotape Florida's executive officer, Lieutenant Commander William Toady, performing many of the same actions, executive officer's response to fire, flooding, missile launch sequence, etc. That's pretty cool. The Navy had been led to believe that the movie's storyline was going to be about a Trident ballistic missile submarine crew attempting to stop the ship's fictional computer from launching nuclear missiles and starting World War III. So that original premise was The Hunt for Red October meets 2001 A Space Odyssey. That, of course, you know, that, that proved to be too implausible. This is something that you might know as well. Following the at-sea walkthrough and missile launch demonstration, Florida returned to port to drop off the studio execs during that transit, Tody spent a great deal of time in the ship's wardroom, just what you were saying, with the studio executives, walking them through the missile launch redundancy procedures. That's pretty cool. And then the film has uncredited additional writing by Quentin Tarantino for a lot of the pop culture dialogue. Because of the Navy's refusal to cooperate with the filming, the production company was unable to secure footage of a submarine submerging. They had to make sure that there was no law against filming naval vessels the producers then waited at a submarine base at Pearl Harbor, where I know you've been, until a submarine was put to sea. So I guess the Navy can pick and choose like which films they're going to, I guess, endorse or not, right? Yeah. That's cool. And of course, the film received mostly positive reviews. Uh, it says high energy thrills and some cracking dialogue, and that it's the end of the world may be around the corner, but what holds us is the sight of two superlatively fierce actors working at the top of their game. It is a riveting pop drama. I agree, man. I think this film is very, very engrossing. I mean, I enjoyed it. I still like I watched it again the other day and I still always like watching it. It's on my list if I ever just want to watch another movie to uh, pass time. Crimson Tide was nominated for three Academy Awards, film editing, sound and sound editing. And then it says the film closely parallels events that occurred during the Cuban Missile Crisis on board Soviet submarine B-59, with Denzel Washington's character reflecting Soviet second in command. Vasily, oh dude, I feel like Vasily is the name of every fucking Russian soldier in every movie. Vasily Vladimir, Ivan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or um, what is it? What's that one? Um, Mikhail or Igor or whatever. The Nikolai. Nikolai, yes. 
Uh, and then, like I said, Robert Mueller in his years as FBI director often quoted Gene Hackman's line, we're here to preserve, not to practice. These are some of the taglines for this film. Danger runs deep in the face of the ultimate nuclear showdown. One man has absolute power and one man will do anything to stop him. I came up with some of my own. Two men know how to ride a horse and veer off course. Second, <laughs> nuclear holocaust a lot. <laughs> and lastly, is Ramsey nuclear as a bell? I don't know that he is. And my contender titles, Hunter hunts a hunter killer in this sub thriller out of his leagues as in plural. And we have the depth of crushing it because this film crushes it. And lastly, deep sea descent. We start, man, we are now in the submarine. We are starting this film, 1995. That's the same year that that great horror thriller film seven came out with Brad Pitt. Are submarines comfortable or do you really get tired of it, man, after being on it for say 30 days? Uh, I've never, like I said, I've never, I've never been stationed on a submarine. I've been on the uh, surface ships. I've done a tour of a modern LA class fa fast attack submarine. Yeah, I'm so glad I'm not on submarines, but they, <laughs> they, they, because they still, um, from what I've been told and what I can gather, they still do hot bunking where it's like, you know, you and people, you and a couple people uh, share the same rack. So it's like, if you're on watch, the other person's in sleeping and vice versa. But I think on the fast attacks, like the one that's in the movie, there's more room. So you get your own rack. I like being able to see sunlight and get some fresh air. So I'm, I'm glad I'm not on a submarine or probably will never be on one. Of course, I feel the same way. Please tell me that they don't serve chili on submarines. And they get everything else that we do on search fleet. And yeah, we get chili. There's a, I guess a different version of it. We get, you know, chili also, but then you ever heard of chuck wagon stew? Oh yes. As a matter of fact, oh. I have. Oh, so good. That's one of my favorite things to make. So, I mean, the, the submarines get the same food that we get on, on the surface fleet. Just, there's less people, so they get like a little more TLC when they're cooking it. Mm. Man, I could go for some chili right now myself. I'm just, mm. I'm, I'm glad I'm not on a sub, you know? Okay, so Hollywood Pictures, and we've got Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer. Now, dude, Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, that Don Simpson, his last film, I think that he was credited for posthumously, was The Rock, which, as Ooh. you know, is my favorite action film. It's, it's C. Drew, your roommate's favorite action film. The Rock is absolutely fucking amazing. And that movie came out in 1996. But I really like Don Simpson and I love Jerry Bruckheimer. I think they bring a lot of good films, well, to the 90s and some other times. But now we get this quote at the beginning, the three most powerful men in the world. Okay. If, if, I'm, if I read it correctly, it says, Falsetto Prophet, uh, brother, <laughs> brother Adam, and Elon fucking Musk. I think that's what I saw. But it, it actually says the president of the United States or the POTUS, president of the Russian Republic, and a captain of a U.S. nuclear missile sub. Now, is that true? Like, was that true that, that the captain of a sub would be the one that made the final call on whether to launch or not? Was that accurate? Yeah. I mean, you're even submarines and surface ship final authority to launch back on shore. You know, the admiral's president, they can say launch, don't launch, but you can, from a ship or even submarine, you can physically, physically launch a missile if you want to. You just, the, you have the launch codes, you do the sequencing, whatnot. It's not like our, at least on, like on surface ships, not, it's not like our missiles are, linked electronically back to the shore side you know not like they can launch for us we always say i mean now again we say the most dangerous person in the world is the ceo of a, of a warship because they can literally come in on their authority if they wanted to and just ha launch missiles yeah so the submarine can do that too especially if they have nuclear missiles they you know as long as they have the, the authentication codes and the, the keys they can launch now at the end of the movie they they kind of followed it up by saying that that was changed in 1996 where the full authority lie, uh, lies with the president. Is that true? Or is it still in the hands of the ship's commander? 
I mean, full authority, yeah, ultimately lies with the, the president, higher authority besides the CEO of the ship. But physically, the CEO of the ship can launch, you know? It's like, it's as if me, if you had a, if right now, if you had a, a gun in your room, and I say, you can't fire that. Right, that right, stop right, you? right, right, you know, right. Like, practical, I'm, for practical yeah, reasons, I'm, I can fire the gun. Yeah, you know, even if, yeah, even if you want to, it's not like, I, I have no physical tie to your to your gun. I can't physically stop the gun from shooting the bullet from, from where I'm sitting at right now. Same Same concept. But the safeguard on the sub is you've got the XO. And so in that yeah. moment, in that moment, when, when Gene Hackman tries to, you know, belay Denzel Washington's orders and kind of do what he wants, do you think that that was accurately demonstrated where the XO says, no, I don't concur. And then Cobb comes over and says, yes, the XO is right. Is that essentially the safeguard that's in place in a physical way to keep one man from going rogue or something? Yeah. I mean, physical and like just by a procedural like you may, have, if you have to have the two, the CEO and EXO concur to launch uh, missiles, and EXO doesn't concur. At least the chief of the boat, he stood up and was like, "Hey, yeah, like this is the the regulations, this is the standard." So you know, if EXO doesn't concur, we can't launch. Okay, so I like I like that. I like how that was played out in the film. Now it's interesting because it shows on the screen that it's October and we're in the Mediterranean Sea. Now mm -hmm. I have two 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 things. First is I think it's funny that it's in October when you had the hunt for Red October, so it's the same fucking word October. But two. <laughs> How much time have you spent in the Mediterranean Sea aboard a ship? Not too long. Maybe, honestly, altogether, maybe like a month uh, just transiting in and out of there. Uh, I've done most of my tour on the on the West Coast, so on the U.S., so in the Pacific. Right. Most, most more of my tour has been at. What's the coldest region you've been? Uh, have you been near any of the poles or anything? No, no, not near the poles. I have been up to, uh, I think the farthest north I've been is, um, well, besides in J Japan, I've been to uh, Vladivostok. Ooh, that sounds uh, yeah. that sounds cool. Now you have this guy Richard Valeriani, and he is a real CNN report. Well, he is a CNN reporter in the film, but he in real life was a real journalist, and he was a correspondent for NBC News. So I thought that was cool. And then we get to see on the TV Bill Clinton's smug fucking face. How about yeah. that? And I love how this guy who's playing this uh, evil radical in the film he says that American intervention is brutish and hypocritical. Ouch. That is an ouch moment. Now, I know that this is probably a somewhat touchy subject for you, but do you feel that America is a world police activist or do you feel that we're only doing what we need to do to protect the entire globe and that's it and nothing more? Or do you think that maybe we're a little bit too political? <laughs> uh, I think we're a little too political. It's, it's like we feel like we're the, we're the world police, that we have to go fix everything. And it's gotten to the point where other countries will ask us to, be, to come and do some policing but then even more countries are like, well, no, don't do that. Why are you helping them out? Right. So I think it was like, so I think we got to the point where we try to be the, uh, the world pleasers, you know, in a way we, we try to help everyone out. But at that same time, if we, if we try to help other countries out and they don't agree with us, then like we have to, we f end up forcing our ideas on them. And, you know, that just creates, you know, disdain and turmoil and distrust and all that good stuff. That's very well said. And it's funny. Cause I think like, for example, what's happening with Russia and what's happening mm -hmm. with the Ukraine or I guess Russia and Ukraine, I don't, it's, it's not the Russia, it's not the Ukraine, but with, with, with Russia and Ukraine, I think it's a similar situation where our hand is being kind of forced and yet no matter what we do, you know, it's going to, it's going to be a problem. So it's real shit, man. And so, you know, even watching this movie that is almost, God, this is like, this is almost 30 years to the day, right? 2005, 2015, 2025. It's almost 30 years from when we've seen it. I think that even though it was a different situation, we're having issues with Russia today. So it's not even that far off in history. It doesn't seem like right now they're at this, they're at this magic show for Denzel Washington's daughter. Her name is Robin. Have you ever seen a magic show, brother Adam? Yeah. A long time ago when I was like 
growing up. I don't think I ever have. I know yeah. I know that you made my car disappear once. <laughs> and I was like, wait a second, what happened to my car? And you're like, oh, no, no worry about that. No, she, you're not going to do that for a while. Um, <laughs> and then I love how he says, man, you're, you know, Denzel Washington chooses watching the news over his daughter's levitation. I thought that was kind of crazy. Is that how it is? So now that you're in the military, well, you've been in the military, but do you find that you're taking a real interest in international affairs? Like, are you sitting there enjoying a quiet moment with your family? And then you see something on the news that's like some aggressive maneuver uh, that you know is going to have far-reaching implications. Do you find yourself like getting real distracted by that, or do you just try to shut it off? I used to watch news a lot more because I used to um, see what's going on. Now it's like I don't really watch the news so much anymore. Like unless something major is going on, like if I get told about something, I'll, I'll, I might do a little research, kind of kind of see what's going on. Like when the whole Ukraine and everything first started, I predicted like that's going to be it's going to be a long long conflict. And in a couple months, people are for, going to forget about it. It's still going on. And like, look what happened. This is what damn near almost a year later, I think. Yeah, yep. almost a year later. And, uh, you know, it's not news as much as it used to be, but it's still going on over there. I still kind of watch it, what's going on, you know, and we're talking about the, like the world police, how we're not directly involved over there, but we were helping, we're helping out like uh, humanitarily, I guess the word to say. And like, we would help give like arms and you know weapons and stuff like that to them but we're not doing direct and combat operations over there at least right you know, not pu- publicly right exactly now they all get a call on their pager did you ever own a pager no no i never had a pager growing up no i never had one i saw them and i i, I was aware of their you know existence but i never had one now we get to this u.s naval sub base and dude there's 20 fucking guards standing there in ponchos is that accurate i mean is that what it's like at the fucking entrance point to the base is you just have 20 armed guards just standing there no, no, you might have two or three. But also, I know what scene you're talking about. I'm watching it, and it's pouring rain, and they have the weapons pointed up. Like, I want to, <laughs> I want to slap the shit out of all of them. Like, if it's raining, you, you keep your weapon pointing down so it's not going down the barrel. Because then when you get done, you almost have, you almost have to clean your weapon if it's going to be, you get rain inside, inside the barrel like, right, like that. Right. I was yeah. like, what the fuck? <laughs> now, 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 here's my question. Okay, these dudes are standing there in this cold ass rain for hours. And I know you've probably been on watch before. How the fuck do you pass the time without falling asleep or going insane in the membrane? Like, how do you, if your watch is eight hours long or even four hours, how do you do that without going insane? Uh, crazy, crazy talks. I, I like break, I like doing um, icebreakers. So let me ask you this. I'm on, I title it Calico Cock, right? So <laughs> multicolored cock, got it. Exactly. All right. So just like, yeah, like a Calico cat, right? Multicolored. Here's the theoretical question. You get an accident, whatever reason, right? And the doctor's like, hey, we're going to have to cut your dick off because, you know, atrocity, whatever happened down there. Now you can live with a tiny penis or <laughs> or the guy next to you in the bed next to you is about to die and he's an organ donor, perfectly healthy. So we can take his his penis and put it on you. However, it's a different color, right? So you're white, he's black, or this, you know, if you're Mexican, whatever, right? What would you rather have? Would you have a tiny dick or would you rather have a calico cock? Well, I think at this point in, in today's culture, you would be doing yourself a huge service by getting the CC or the calico cock because if anyone ever accused you of being insensitive to any other person, culture, group, ethnicity, anything, you could always say, I don't even know what you're talking about because I have a calico cock and, I, it's, and I'm totally universal and all of my love for everyone. Yeah. So you have, you have a very diverse dick and, you're, and as, you, as I say, you don't discriminate. Right, right. Look at you. You've already thought this out. Man, I didn't come prepared. <laughs> I, I just think that it's and also like when you're flirting, right? When you're out in the world flirting, you can be like, man, my, you could say, you know, my cock's been all over the world. Or you can say, like, my cock has a very refined cultural palate or something, right? Yeah. Um, so there you go. I mean, that's the answer presents itself. God, yeah. that's how you I mean, 
That's how you pass the time. I like it. I just hope you oh, don't yeah. slip up on the radio and you're like, they're like, uh, Ayo, Quadrant 3, come in. And you're like, uh, Quadrant Cock Calico Secure, sir. Oh, shit. I mean, fuck. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, no, we've got those random conversations. Just like, you know, would you actually, there's a point saying like in the Navy, you know, the whole stereotypical, like, oh, say it was a gay, whatever. Right? You know, like, we just play on that. Like, all right, fuck it, whatever, you know. If you're sitting there and watching and someone just comes up and someone just asks a question, would you? Just that's it. You say yes or no. The question is, would you ever suck a dick for a million dollars? That's that's what that's what the unsaid question is. Say, would you? If something like you're sitting there and someone's coming and goes, Hey man, would you? Like, out of nowhere. That that's the question. You're like, uh no. Or some of you are like, Yeah, I'll do that and then pay the person off. Like, what the fuck? Weird random conversations underway. You get to learn a lot about people. Sure. You know? <laughs> well, and it's it's right, because you can't you can't keep up that that cool exterior for months at a time when you're you're just getting to that point of, okay, I want to open up to somebody or whatever. But I'll tell you, man, you know, sucking D for a million. Maybe in 1995, that would be a smooth maneuver. But here, today's world, with a you know inflation being what it is, I think you might have to add a zero to that. A million dollars. I mean, you're lucky if that'll buy you hot hot sauce packets at Taco Bell now. You know, million dollars Oklahoma or million dollars California because there's a big spread on that. <laughs> no doubt. Now we get a lot of dogs in this movie. There's at least two because Denzel Washington has a dog, and of course uh, Ramsey has a dog. Now we get this talk of an Arabian horse. Now I don't know dick shit about horse riding, but I can mm-hmm. tell you that I will be riding horse here in a couple weeks. As I will be out of town, Red Devil has a business trip, and the activity is is horseback riding. So Ooh. we'll get to ride a horse. Have you? Do you have experience riding horses? I, I rode horses. Uh, Uncle Mickey, he had horses. Um, he actually had Arabians. Wow. Um, so wow. the, the Arabians are really expensive. They're really good. A lot of people have them for like breeding and for show horses. Right. Um, they're pretty big, powerful. But like a lot of horses, the um, back home is a lot of like the American Quarter or the paint horses. You know, just Appaloosas. Yeah. Um, Cl- Clydesdales. I rode Clydesdale before, and actually in high school I took a. I took a semester of equine science, right? Yes, yes. Because uh, my dumbass didn't know what that meant. I thought it was like aquatic science. I thought it was like ocean. I'm like, oh, <laughs> learn about oceanography. Cool. So I walk in and there's like pictures of horses everywhere. I'm like, what the fuck is this? Like, welcome to equine science. I was like, son of a bitch. I don't... But I, I mean, that was an easy class. I passed it. You know, I aced it. Yeah, I just thought it was pretty funny. Like, but yeah, I like I like riding horses. It's been a while since I've since I've written one. But yeah, if, if when you go ride horses, it's fun. Just you know, I do some leg stretches before because it's been how long you. You ride a horse for if you've never ridden one before, you're going to get off that saddle and it's going to feel like you did the 3,000 squats with your crotch. Oh, man. For the last two weeks, I have been sitting on a saddle in the living room to prepare myself. So I am good to go. Don't feel too retarded, man, because on the equine shit, I always thought that equestrian, or equestrian, I always thought that meant like Tropic of Cancer, Tropic of Capricorn. I thought it had something to do where you are in the world, like a, like a, like a geographical location or some grid space. That's what I always <laughs> yeah. thought with equestrian. I don't know why, but that's what I thought. But maybe maybe we're equally dumb. I don't know. But um, now he says, Russell says the Jack Russell Terrier is the smartest dog alive, and he names it Bear. Well, I did some research. The Intelligence of Dogs is a 1994 book on dog intelligence by Stanley Corrin. And in this book, where all of these dogs are rated on in various categories for their intelligence, Jack Russell Terrier is number 46 on the list. So that's 45 dogs ahead of it. Now, obviously, the brightest dog is a border fucking collie. Hey, remember Rocco? That was a border, yeah. was a border collie right there. My old, yeah, dog, Rocco. My old dog, Rocco. Doc, Rocco was cute as a as a puppy, but unfortunately, Rocco would grow up to be kind of an asshole. Okay, so now here's my question. So we, we see this scene of where there's an old school briefing where they've got the big chart up and they've got all these paper documents and they've got maps. Now, how does the military currently feel about paper documents as opposed to digital data? Are you still like the highly classified material is that still in paper form or are they concerned about hacking or how does that work is it kind of a hybrid it's kind of a hybrid we have we have our like normal like internet emails and we have our secret side so a whole different servers that are like 
pretty good at, at being secure so that no one can hack into them. But a lot of stuff is digital now with some you know paper backups. We really don't protect. We try to put too much stuff on paper just case just because it's easy for people to, to physically take. Um, oh, okay. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, it's kind of like it's like it's almost like reversely intuitive because you would think that you could lock down paper documents, but you could easily like you know lift a paper document and stick it like in your pants. But uh, but yeah. if it, but if the digital data is secured, you'd have to actually like crack it or something to get it out. Yeah. So that mm-hmm. makes sense. Is it ten warheads on an ICBM, or is each ICBM like in and of itself one warhead, or can you have multiple warheads on just one ICBM? I'm not too familiar with that, with that but I think a combo combination. I think you know they used to have like one. ICBM would be like one major warhead. I think some are more, some are more modified to have like a couple different, Woo, couple man. different in it. Man, that's so. either way you wouldn't want one landing on your swimming pool, right? Um, yeah, no. So I looked it up a little bit. An intercontinental ballistic missile is a ballistic missile with a range greater than thirty four hundred miles. Well, bro, that means that where I live right now and where you live, even though we're on on opposite ends of the coast, I think I could hit you with an ICBM from here. Um, mm-hmm. Probably. I don't know my aim, you know, being what it is, but. Now, it's primarily designed for nuclear weapons delivery, uh, delivering one or more thermonuclear warheads. Now, interestingly enough, conventional chemical and biological weapons can also be delivered with varying effectiveness, but have never been deployed on ICBMs. I wonder why. Because, I mean, I was always thinking that in our current society, it would it would be the chemical and biological on an ICBM. That'd be some fucked up shit. The Navy, it says he, he says that the Navy looks the other way on Ramsey having a dog on the sub because he's been with the Navy a long time and he has combat experience. Are you allowed to bring your own personal fucking dog on a submarine? <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. Now you see this guy blowing a bugle. Are, are bugles still blown in the military or is, is that of yore? I've never seen a, a bugle like that being blown. Um, we have actual like musicians that'll play like, you know, the trumpets, stuff like that. But um, I haven't seen a bugle. So how did they do revelry? Revelry? Uh, well, a lot of it's just a recording now. Like on the bases, like they, oh. they hook up a lot of speakers and they play it. But on the ship, you actually come over to the 1MC at 6 o'clock in the morning and say, you know, there's a verbiage we say, it says, Reveille, Reveille, all hands heave out and try stuff, Reveille. Okay, I gotcha. Sub, they say 150 feet. Why not just say 150 feet? Is it so that they're articulating each digit because it's important? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Usually when you come across and you say, like, like numbers, you always have to say specifically, like, you know, two, like 1250 feet. But even the Navy, instead of saying 5 with the V, we say, we're supposed to say Fife, F-I-F-E. So, like, 1-5, because 5 can sound like fire. Oh, that, yeah. oh, and, and that's interesting you bring that up because guess what? There will be a fucking fire in the galley on this on this boat, on this yeah. this boat now. What does five degrees down bubble mean? Please translate that to me. My understanding uh is just like the, the angle that you're going up or down. So five degrees. If you're level, that's zero degrees, and the five degrees would be um, you know, just down five degrees. Okay. My that's my understanding. So we get this reminder, it tells us how many days we've been on this terrible sub. It's day one, and then we have day three. Oh shit, recognize the little small role of Steve Zahn and Ryan Felipe? Those two fucks yeah. are in this movie. How about that? I, know, um, I saw that. I was like, oh shit. Oh shit, indeed. And uh, okay, we do have a fire now. Now talk about fires on naval vessels and in vehicles. Uh, how seriously is a fire taken? <laughs> well, on a ship? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, we are our fire department. So we run like every day we do drills for uh, firefighting and uh, security, right? So we do firefighting drills every day because the biggest threat on a ship is, is a fire. But I'm curious about that. So obviously, I know that a fire can start having issues because one, you have uh, smoke spreading, but then you also have it. It's taking a lot of oxygen. But I just thought that on a ship or on a sub, for example, you would be able to seal off the room to that fire, and then the fire would just you know extinguish because of lack of oxygen or something. Is that easier said than done? <laughs> yeah, yeah, easier said because not you're not going to do that because if you do that, if 
because you have to like secure ventilation. You have to close all ventilation into the space. But even then, if you let the fire, let it burn out itself, as long as, you know, if it doesn't like start catching fire and going through the, through the bulkheads and through the wiring and whatnot, it would just burns itself out in there. As soon as you open up and let oxygen in there, it's going to create a backdraft. Okay. So, okay. So it's, I, a, it's a fucking problem is the bottom. Yeah. Line. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Now the captain's missile key, the fucker's wearing it around his neck. Is that just like a prop or is that, a, is that like a real deal where there's like an actual missile key? Uh, there, there, are, there are missile keys. So they have keys that the captain will have um, either on him or like in his stateroom in a safe that in order to launch, we actually have the keys and put it into like a control panel in order to launch. You know, you can't just go up like, oh, let me fire a missile and press a button. The captain has to have a, a, his key inserted into the, the, the panel. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, does this comms room look legitimate or does it look a little bit bigger than it probably is? Oh, were they working that radio? Uh, well, no. Well, I, uh, I'm sorry. I call the comm where like where the where the captain spends a lot of his time giving orders to the chief of the boat, where they're monitoring uh, radio, oh, the, uh, sonar and oh, they're doing all kinds of stuff. Oh, the con. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. The con. Yeah. So the conning tower uh, on a submarine. I mean, for a boomer, it probably looks a little bit legit because it is a big space. We have like your helmsman, you have your con right there. You have like your sonar shack off to the side, um, your navigation table right there. It looks probably looks about the same, just as I think would be on a submarine. Okay, cool. Now uh, I looked it up so that he says one one SQ WRST. Well, first of all, that stands for Weapon System Readiness Test, so that's pretty cool. And then uh, when you think about one SQ, well, then you have like conditions, like so con so set condition one. Well, this guy, it's basically what does set for condition 1SQ from the movie Crimson Tide. That's the article. But its material condition is a Navy-wide ship readiness code similar to the national DEFCON code. Now, it's my understanding that DEFCON 5 is everything's great, and DEFCON 1 means we're fucked, right, on the DEFCON scale. Uh, yes. And so for the ship, uh, condition 1 is battle stations. Condition 4 is import with the import duty section. And then condition 3 is at sea peacetime conditions. The only threats are fire and collision. And then condition two, basically things are getting hotter. But condition one is, okay, we're, we're going into fucking battle, basically. So I thought that was cool. And then, of course, you know, you hear this a lot in this film is taking the con. So I guess you're just kind of taking command of that, of the con tower. And then you got Hackman saying, yeehaw. <laughs> well, that's actually a Dr. Strangelove reference, if you remember that movie, where it was like, you know, how to love the atomic bomb or whatever. You see Denzel Washington boxing on the sub to stay in shape. Now, I believe that you, Adam, spend a lot of time working out on the ship as well to try to stay fit, right? Yeah. And I also think it's interesting that Denzel Washington is boxing because in 1999, he would get an Academy Award nomination for his role as Ruben the Hurricane Carter, who was put in prison and he was a boxer. So in that film, he had to get in really good shape to be a boxer. Um, now we get day six and we see Zulu time on the screen. Well, what the fuck is Zulu time? Well, I know you know what it is, but I didn't know what it is. But it claims it's the military name for UTC, which is Coordinated Universal Time, and it is used primarily in aviation, at sea, and in the Army. Is that right? Yeah. And so what is the significance of that? Like, So you say Zulu time because if, you, if you're given Zulu time, you can give that time anywhere on the planet, and that tells the recipient they know exactly what time it is if they're familiar with Zulu time, right? Yeah. So. Zulu time is a standard throughout, right? It's based off GMT, Greenwich uh, Mean Time. Right. right. You know, we're our latitude or yeah, zero, zero, zero. Um, so right now, like, you know, you're in, you're on East Coast. It's a different time than West Coast. So you say, oh, we'll do something at one o'clock, 1 p.m. Well, that's 10 p.m. or, you know, sorry, 10 a.m. over over in San Diego. Leave the confusion. Everything's Zulu time. Everything's the standard. Hey, 1600 Zulu. 
right? And depending on where you're at in the world, you can look it up. And, okay, that, that over here we're we're at that's like five a.m. or you know it, it's four p.m. something like that. So the other time is just the standard time throughout the whole world is based off your GMT time. Whenever we um, send out messages or any type of official documents, it's always considered in Zulu time. Okay, interesting. And now I know because now I'm going to see that on other uh, war films, and I won't feel like I'm fucked hard. Now we get an EAM or emergency action message, which will be very important for purposes of the plot. Now, to me, they should change the name of that EAM to emergency ambiguous message or EAMM emergency action mixed fucking message. Because to me, we need to get a little clarity. But if we didn't have these this fragment message, then we wouldn't have a story. So I like it. Now we're on day 11. And then you get this little discussion about Silver Surfer. Well, I had to learn about that. So he says that the Kirby Silver Surfer is better than the Mobius Silver Surfer. Well, I learned that Jack Kirby was the original artist for the Silver Surfer character in the comics. But then later, and only for a short period of time, did you have Mobius. And this was for like a limited series in like 1988 and 1999. But for the vast majority of Silver Surfer's history, it was Jack fucking Kirby. Now, here's my question. Do you think Denzel knew about Silver Surfer and he, and he knew what he was talking about? Or do you think he was just trying to be nice to the guy and had no fucking clue about like who the better artist was? He's probably just trying to be nice. Nice to the guy. What do you think about the performances in this flick? Are you are you still impressed with the tension that Gene Hackman and Denzel are able to create for their um, confrontations? Yeah, I, I do. I like it, especially when, like when other people notice and they everyone kind of looks back and they have that. <laughs> you can tell you have that. You can tell they have that feeling of, un, of uneasement around them. Yes, exactly. Now, have you witnessed shit like that where you have where you have like a not necessarily a captain and like an immediate subordinate, but have you seen two people? Just in like in you know in civil times, going like fucking irate at each other, and it becomes kind of like the equivalent of being in high school when the fight would break out. Have you seen something like that, but like at a bureaucracy level? Yeah, I've seen it. I'm a junior sailor, and I've done it. I've been in that as a senior enlisted. You know, of course, we try to do it. You try not to do it in front of the juniors. So, like, you know, we have our so we have a chief's mess that we go into and hash it out. We have a place where we cuss and discuss, as we call it. Um, <laughs> oh God, I love the military jargon. I love it. Yeah, um, but like. I've, I've been it where like someone's trying to come at me for some bullshit and i'm like okay like let, let's go in the mess you know and like i'm like you're not gonna and we go in the mess i'm like first of all you're not gonna fucking talk to me like that in front of my junior sailors so fuck you and so, you know, and like you know because you don't want you don't want your your junior sailors thinking anything other than uh, thinking, thinking bad about you like you don't want them thinking like, oh fucking you know why is someone else coming at him for something like that you know and also like a lot, lot when i was you know I, I see a lot when i was my chief or my department head getting into it and i just turn and walk away I'm like yeah i'm not i'm not gonna be around for this shit now this is actually touched on in this film because Gene Hackman does that. You know, he says, look, you know, if you have questions, fine. But when you question me in front of the, the whole command crew, it, it's a fucking problem, right? So he touches on that very thing. Now we see day 12 and they're at the Kamchatka Peninsula. Well, I didn't know what the fuck that was. I assumed it was in Russia because I could barely pronounce it. But the Kamchatka Peninsula is a remote and wild region of Russia where ice and fire coexist in stunning landscapes of volcanoes, hot springs, and snow. Dude, that sounds like a fucking beautiful place. Mm-hmm, it does. Now, what does this mean, the torpedo rigged for ultra quiet? How do you fucking make a torpedo silent? That's what I want to know. I was thinking that there's no way you can make a torpedo ultra quiet. Like, a torpedo's, torpedo is loud, is a loud weapon in itself. So I think that was like just a little movie, movieism, okay. you know? Okay, so then he says, make your depth smartly. Now, what does he mean by smartly? Like, gingerly? Yeah, like... Uh, gently, like, you know, not, uh, make sure you're not cavitating, you know, make sure you're not, um, moving the planes too much. Cause you know, all the diving planes are uh, hydraulically, you know, based, it's all hydraulics, right? And so it creates a sound, you know, that the hydraulic fluid being pushed through the pistons to 
have the creep pressure raise or lower the, the planes makes noises. So doing it smartly, you can do it slowly, make them quieter. Okay, okay. Now he says it's 14 minutes till weapons ready. Why the fuck does it take so long to arm the weapons? Well, a lot of times you have to like load them up, right? There's uh, the missile in the missile bay, and, the, and they have to load up with like preset target packages. So they have to like like load a computer system you know, in, inside the missile. So they you only know, load it up, and it takes a while to just pretty much upload everything and to get the system just the missile ready to launch. You know, you can't just shoot and it's going to go willy nilly. <laughs> it's, it's not like turning on a PlayStation, right? It's, um, yeah, gotcha. gotcha. Well, and I like how the movie does these things. It doesn't take the time that you're taking right now to explain it because the movie, in other words, the movie treats you like you can kind of figure some of it out or you can intuit some of it, but it's just really mm -hmm. great to have you on to actually like confirm or deny, you know, whether it's, it's good shit or bullshit. Extending the low frequency antenna. Is that something that's actually done or is that just a movieism? They do have, from my understanding, they do have some like communications like that where they can drag something on the surface to receive and transmit some uh, communication stuff. But as far as their, their capability of what, how, how long it is, I, I don't know. Okay. And so it says, it says that they're hunting uh, a hunter, an HK or a hunter killer sub. Mm -hmm. And I like that because in the movie Terminator, those um, futuristic uh, killing robots are called HKs or hunter killers. How can you detect a torpedo? Like, how do they know it's not a fucking shark or a dolphin? Like, how are they able to? Uh, oh man, the whole sonar thing, it just, cause I'm a, cause I'm a sonar tech in the Navy. So I have a lot to say about the whole sonar. <laughs> Okay, dude, please, for the love of Christ, tell me about the accuracy of the, because the sonar here, this sonar station is huge for purposes of the plot. I mean, these guys are able to tell everyone on the ship or on the boat or the whatever the fuck it is, submarine. They're able to tell everyone, okay, we got two hot torpedoes in the water bearing 050, and they're going to impact us in like eight seconds. How the fuck are they able to see these torpedoes so clearly? In other words, if I'm launching a torpedo, I want it to have some sort of mask where you can't tell where the torpedo is so that you can't evade it. So please talk to me about sonar. All the screens you see on there when it talks to has like that has a little red, two red uh, dots on it. That's like a, a that's like a radar screen, but they, they made one for quote unquote sonar. Sonar doesn't look like that. The only sonar screen they that looks accurate is in the beginning when they pick up they have have a broadband contact bearing two seven zero and show that small snippet, it just like looks like a waterfall display, we call uh -huh. it. Like that's what we see, right? So you're not going to see like little till pings dots like that, right? Especially if they're not going active, which they weren't going active the whole time. And it's not going to show up red or different colors like that, <laughs> you know? And when you see a torpedo being launched, you, you're not going to pick it up. It's not going to be, not going to be, oh, 500 yards, 600 yards. It's, all you have is bearing and it's just loud. It just creates a lot of noise. And so our system's picking up saying, hey, there's some loud frequencies down this way. Yeah. So you're, you're going to hear, you're going to hear it passively, like, and like, you don't know what direction it's coming from, but you're not going to know exactly how far away it is. That's inaccurate as fuck. <laughs> no doubt. Uh, but yeah. Let me ask this. So if they made a submarine thriller 100% in line with accurate communications and accurate procedures, how entertaining of a movie would that be? It was like accurate? Yeah, like just 100% 100, 100 accurate. Like you have you have the same story where you've got this old sea dog commander who's just never fired a weapon and he just really wants to. And then you have his new fresh out of Harvard uh, XO made the movie 100% realistic. Would it even be exciting? I don't think so. It'd be more frustrating as, as anything. <laughs> now that, that is a term that I can relate to, my good man. Frustration. I say It'd be frustrating because like, oh, let's get the fucking, you know, the whatever. We need this one thing. Well, we don't have it. Well, why not? Let's go to supply. Supply can't order. They have, or they have it in their stock, in their stock system way down in like some other random space. So it's going to take you 17 hours to do two seconds worth of work. And then they're going to be like, oh, this thing broke, right? And also like, not the ship as, you know, they're running around to the ship and you see all the steam, you know, the steam, you know, 
throughout the ship. There's no, if there's a steam leak, we have a problem. You know, you never want to see steam <laughs> leaking through pipes, and and there's no there's no crawl spaces for you to crawl through. You know, up and out. That's you can't do that. Like there's some small cableways, but those are in the normal spaces. There's no like yeah, there's no like crawl spaces. You can't be like, oh, I'm gonna go sneak from this part of the ship to the other part of the ship to this to this crawl space. Like, come on, that's that's not realistic. Denzel <laughs> <laughs> talks about the concept of redundancy. Where if one sub does not act on orders, they'll just go to the other subs that are active in the area. Does that have a ring of truth to it? Or is that just a way to kind of explain for purposes of the plot? Uh, no, we never done see. So there's always a backup plan of like, hey, if, you know, if we go out, you know, for these, these assets, if this asset fails to make it on time or fails to do the job, the defaults back to the next one in order and stuff like that. When we do like operation or exercise, we always have a plans like a kind of a chain command plan. And, you know, if, if, if this happens, then we do this. Right, right. Well, so now we get that scene, the now the shut the fuck up scene, which is my favorite. And there's this woman, Emily Watson, who wrote an article, Why I Love Captain Cannot Concur Crimson Tide. And she says, but while the conflict is there, the actors keep it contained. Washington cleverly never pitches his voice much above mildly irate until the big scene. He is mostly soft, civil, and smooth as silk, although you're sure they're still beneath. And Hackman, even while playing an unapologetic hard man, is quite careful around his XO, quite measured in his responses. So the shouting, when it comes, packs some welly. Dude, I still love that scene. Because you know that Gene Hackman is getting pissed off. You can see it. And then Denzel keeps pushing. And then when he finally just unloads on him, it's like, okay, we saw this coming, but it still is fucking awesome. Yeah. Ah. Is that realistic when Denzel says, I don't recognize your authority to relieve the command under naval regulations? If in that moment you're talking, okay, so like what happens if you have a superior officer and it's wartime and the superior officer gives you a command, but you, for whatever reason, you systematically and, and fully believe that that order is invalid or that it's immoral or something. If you get pulled over by a cop, which I'm sure you've never, ever been pulled over in your life because you're such a great upstanding man, but... <laughs> when you get pulled over by the cop, the cop tells you to do something. My best advice to cinematic fanatics is do what the cop says and then try to fight him in court later. But don't take your war to the streets because you're going to fucking lose. Well, so my question is, what do you do if you're getting a direct order from a, a superior officer, but you just feel based on your knowledge and your, and your gut instinct that it's a bad order? What do you do? Do you challenge him? Do you just do it? I mean, what, what ramifications are there if you feel like you're declining a, an immoral order? Uh, well, as long as you have documentation and, and regulations to back you up, then, you know, in theory, you're, you'll be fine, right? But also at the same time, if the captain told you to do something and you did something and it was totally illegal, it falls on the captain at the end of the day because he gave the order and you're following. But I mean, it, that's tricky because is it a lawful order? Yes or no? If it's lawful but immoral, it's still lawful, right? But if it's, uh, okay, okay, you know, but it's unlawful, then yeah, it's on you. But if it's like a lawful order, then, you know, it falls on the captain. Okay, so basically it would be important, obviously, that you understood the rules yourself. So you would know if you were at least being asked something that was even legitimate or not. Yeah, like, okay. yeah. I mean, 20 years, I'm still, I still research and look at rules and regulations and, and I'm going to cover my ass. I ain't going to go, I ain't going, going down. I ain't losing my anchors because, you know, I did something that I didn't know about. Like, I'm always researching and refreshing myself on updated rules and regulations in the Navy. Smart man. You hear that? You heard it here first, Cinematic Fanatics. If you are in the military or in civilian life, do your fucking research. Do it. I love when uh, Ramsey's leaving the con and he tells Hunter, you're way out of your league. Okay, you know what's great is he should have said, you're out of your leagues, as in three nautical miles, Hunter. And so I looked it up and a league is three nautical miles. 
It's any of various units of distance from about 2.4 to 4.6 statue miles. So that's why it's Jules Verne, 30,000 mm. Leagues Under the Sea, whatever. And I love when he's talking to the the, uh, the radio guy and he's like, hey, how, how are you going to be able to fix this radio? He's like, well, unless it starts shitting electrons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then he's like, we don't need smart ass remarks. It takes a thousand yards for these torpedoes to arm. Is that so they don't explode too close to the uh, the sub that's firing them? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. They get like a little safety so that when you, if you shoot the torpedo, it's not going to detonate right at, right in there. It'll, it'll actually have to um, electronically arm uh, okay. before it can, before it can actually blow up. That makes sense. And I, I like when Tony Soprano says, "Stand aside." My advice is don't fuck with the Soprano, dude, because it will not end well. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I like the Soprano Seaman and uh, and James Gandolfini. I like how he says, you know, that when he's planning his mutiny. Okay, so at this point, Denzel has lawfully put the captain in his chambers and he's taken over command. So really what happens on this ship, you have two mutinies. You have the first mutiny, which is when Gene Hackman comes, takes over command from Denzel Washington. So that's the first mutiny. Because at that point, uh, Gene Hackman is like, he's defying a, a lawful situation at that point. Mm, yeah. And so, but then you have mutiny number fucking two which is when Denzel Washington comes back and then tries to take it back from the captain. There's like two mutinies happening. And that's why, of course, I call the title of this slick flick pick uh, mutiny mimicry because it's like, you know, one mutiny is kind of following with the other. But it's just crazy, man. It's a crazy movie. Like a lot happens in 25 minutes. I, I still find it exciting, even though I know how it ends. I like how he says, Weps is the key. You have to get Weps because he is the key. Funny because Weps is like literally the guy with the key to open yeah. that fucking safe. There's a small arms locker. Does this exist on subs? Yeah. yeah. So every every ship will have a small arms locker with like some pistols and some rifles. They stay in their top their watches and port the security watches, so they they maintain their own weapons on the small on the ship. How many people like who would have access to the small arms locker? Uh, well, there's usually only two sets of keys: duty armor, which I guess in the submarine would be the weapons officer underway, and then there's a a set of uh, backup keys. That like there's always someone designated on the ship who is like the key custodian, but they have a copy of all the keys for any type of space on the ship. They're usually like the dispersing officer, the money officer, right? Because he does a lot of financial stuff, so he has a safe uh, naturally. So they usually put the keys in there. So but because of that dispersing officer is not, at least I can speak for my ship, uh, they're not allowed to stand arm watch because it's like conflict of interest. You know, they can't. They have access. They have a hold the key to the armor, like the armor, and that's their job to hold it. They can't stand arm watch. Okay, so, interesting. Yeah. Do you like how it shows Hunter staring down his Judas? AKA Webs. Oh, at when at the end when they when they start walking or when yeah after, yeah after when when he like because because Webs was his friend and yeah. Webs and Webs ultimately you know sided against him. Yeah, and then he starts looking away like one of those like awkward like ah please don't look at me. Yeah. <laughs> I would not want to have to deal with the paperwork on this undersea fiasco. Can you imagine mm-hmm. how fucked up of a report that would be? And then I love how he says, "Open the fucking safe." And right now Ramsey is a thief. And then he puts a gun to Hilaire, which is very unfair to Hilaire, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> but did you think that if he had not conceded, do you think that Gene Hatman would have blown Hilaire's fucking head off? I don't know. I don't know. Because after he, I don't know, maybe he would have, because after he, like, as he says, all right. And he kind of looks at him, like, like if you look at his, Gene Hackman's eyes, he kind of looks at the, the Hilaire, and it's kind of like the look of, like, he came back to reality. He was, as he was like, oh, man, like, what am I doing? Yes. You know? Yes, exactly. And in fact... Rewatching it, I thought what was going to happen was when Viggo Mortensen said, all right, I thought Gene Hackman was going to just stand down and be like, okay, I- I'm not, I've gone too far. But instead it was like, if Viggo Mortensen hadn't said that, I think he would have just shot him because he, wa- he wasn't in his right mind, I guess, in that moment. 
You know that guy who plays Scott Grimes? I'm actually looking up. He, I've seen him before. Like he is a, he's an actor. Yeah, I've seen him before too. He he's in an episode of that show Suits that your your roommate C Drew and I like. But I've seen him before too. Yeah, no doubt. Oh, okay. He plays a American Dad. He plays C Smith, and he he plays Kevin Swanson from uh, Family Guy. Okay, how about that? Yeah, I was looking up the characters from um from Kristen Tide and uh, like yeah, Scott uh, Ryan Felipe's in there. A lot of people don't realize that, or even um. Steve's on. Yep. Yep. And actually, at the beginning, Viggo Mortensen, his in the movie, his son in the movie is actually his actual son. Oh shit! How about that? Yeah. I love how you you had previously seen Hunter practicing on a punching bag, and here he takes two punches to the face. Apparently, punching the punching bag taught him how to take punches. <laughs> <laughs> now, dude, I'm, I'm sure you've had some awkward moments in your time in the military, but can you think of a more awkward fucking three minutes? between the cigar smoking and Ramsey and Hunter, that has got to be so awkward. Like, well, let's just sit here and decide if we're going to kill each other or kill the whole world. Yeah. Like just sitting there and talk about lippers on our stallions. <laughs> yes. And so I actually looked that up. And of course, um, that's something that comes up enough times in the film. You have to do it. But the ancestors of Lipizzan can be traced to around 800 AD. The earliest predecessors of the Lipizzan originated in the 7th century when barb horses were brought into Spain by the Moors and crossed on native Spanish stock. The result was the Andalusian horse and other Iberian horse breeds. So long story short, Denzel Washington was right. They do have a Spanish origin and it's they, they're not really so much white as they are gray. So it's really different shades of gray. But yeah, I mean, I thought that was kind of an interesting metaphor for showing at this point, I think, I don't think that Gene Hackman is racist in the film. I think what he's doing is he's just trying to they're having a pissing contest. He's in front of a bunch of guys. I think he's just trying to get a rise out of Denzel Washington. I don't think he's a racist. I think he's just trying to piss him off. That's what I think. That's my takeaway. Yeah. Yeah. I never, I never got the whole like a any type of racial vibe or anything for him. I think he just, he just, Gene Hackman is old school and here comes a brand new XO, you know, yes. right before they get on the way. So he's, he's trying to test him out and realize he probably doesn't like him because he's, he's more, he's more of a scenes. I think Gene Hackman thinks, thinks of, Denzel Washington characters as a more of a policy guy than actual, you know, warfare guy. I'll tell you, man, you know, you, you're picking up a lot of clever little nuances in the film because, for example, I think the moment that Denzel Washington basically fucked himself on this sub because he was doing well. It's like Gene was impressed by his his scholastic achievements. I think he was impressed with how he could just kind of sit quietly and enjoy the sunset. I think he was doing pretty good. But I think where Denzel Washington fucked himself right in his exo asked was when he said about the philosophy of war and how war is is unto itself like an enemy to mankind and all that i think that's when i think gene hackman never looked at him the same way after that i think he realized that they had completely functional differences on their wartime and, and even peacetime philosophy and i think he was never able to recover from that moment except maybe at the end of the movie that's where everything changed was when they were having coffee and they had on the table, they had a hot sauce and they had Worcestershire. Now, how do you pronounce Worcestershire sauce? That's what I want to know. I say Worcestershire. Okay, you're, you're right. You're right. You're right. But a lot of things, I, including condiments. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I just, I don't know how to pronounce it. I say Worcestershire. I was like, I don't fucking know. Give me that black sauce. <laughs> yeah, black sauce, like the lip, lipids and uh, stallions are black at birth, or so uh, Denzel Washington says. Give me that black at birth sauce. Okay, they start cheering on every floor of the sub. Once they realize that, you know, they're to terminate any sort of launch. It's my understanding that on a submarine, the last thing you want to be doing is screaming and shouting. Because as we learned from Hunt for Red October, you might alert enemy subs, correct? Yeah, yeah. They always, they should be quiet. 
under, underway. <laughs> also, also like the steel grating, you know, when they're running on, you hear, you hear the steel, like the clank, clank, clank. Yep. Like, yep. they might have steel grating, but they also have like rubber uh, insulators. Insulators, so when it's metal, metal, it's a, instead of metal, metal, it's rubber on rubber. So, I mean, that was a, that was a Hollywoodism. They kind of fucked that fucked up. So you would be you would be allowed to run on a sub for exercise purposes. Like, is that even possible? Maybe on a boomer like that class, but on like a fast attack, there's probably not much room. They, they might have a designated like small, tiny ass gym area, like maybe like a treadmill and like some weights, but that's probably it. <laughs> now we're at the naval headquarters in Pearl Harbor. Uh, have mm-hmm. you actually been there? Yeah, I've been to Pearl Harbor a couple times. Do you think that was filmed on location, or was that just a straight up uh, a movie set? Uh, I think it was filmed on location. Look, I mean, it looked like Hawaii. It kind of looked like something I've seen before. You know, that was in 1995. I do remember that scene. Like, no one walks around base all day in their whites like that. There's not like you know, nowadays. It's not typical. We just walk around in whites all day. So I think that was, I think that was the right place. But everyone just they had everyone on the set was walking around in their whites and their their uniforms. Normally, you'd walk around like your your work uniform, not your like kind of in your whites. The whites would be like reserved for maybe ceremonies and stuff, right? Yeah, ceremonies, watch standing, you know, some some more little little more formal. Just walking around, you know, the base. You're not really gonna wear your your whites or your even your dress blues like that. Dude, my dress whites would not be white for long because much like your brohan to me, I would be sweating a fucking storm in, in Hawaii. I would have my dress yellows. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. And even then the, the the material, the C and T's, you can always tell when people have their hands in their pockets just because the oils. From natural oils from your hands, if they at the years at the long time of wearing them, they'll just start to naturally turn their uh, pockets not white anymore. Ugh. So, is this this board of inquiry and everything is that pretty legitimate, or is that just kind of to make things a little bit more bombastic and more suspenseful in the film? No, they'll have and they'll, they they don't have board of inquiries like that. They would have them uh, boards like that. You have to see what's going on, especially something major like that would happen. It would be like almost like a that'd be a special convening board of you know it's supposed to be non biased personnel who have don't know that people have no no direct like authority in that command that would do the inquiry do the investigation so it's a little weird at the end when the admiral when the admiral is there, he says he's, he's known him for like 30 years it's kind of like well normally that wouldn't happen you like, oh, let's get someone else to really know him. <laughs> oh sure of course because it, it's the um conflict of interest right uh typical here's something interesting so he says that gene hackman is gonna take early retirement slash he's recommended hunter for a promotion now, mm-hmm. did you take away from that, hey, Hunter, if you drop this shit, you will be promoted. And then Hunter just goes along with it. Or did you think that there was really no corruption going on at all, that, that it's really just kind of the best ending to the situation? I think that was the best ending to the situation. I think that was, uh, you know, Hackman's or Captain Ramsey's saying, like admitting that, you know, he was, he fucked up and he recognizes, uh, you know, Commander Hunter's ability to make the right decision. Because at the end, he's like, you're right. I was wrong about the horses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Save, he, save he never, face. He, yeah. He never, yeah, he never said he was wrong, but like, I think by taking his retirement and, and, and recommending uh, the XO for uh, his own command was a way of saying, like, yeah, I fucked up. You're right without physically saying it. I totally agree with that. And also, I think that he knows that Ramsey's old and he's never going to command another sub or whatever. So the damage is, is over now. Like, there's not going to be any more fallout because he's, yeah. out of, he's out of the Navy. Any other takeaways from the film? Like, anything else you enjoyed about it? I know you now you prefer by probably long measure Hunt for Red October, right? Like you just enjoy Hunt for Red October more. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I like the dialogue. (laughs) Don't shoot the (laughs) Mishaios. So you would say that like Hunt for Red October is like an A plus, and this is kind of a B version of Hunt for Red October. You would see Hunt for Red October at the, at the big screen. And this is one you like watch at home. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, if both these movies came out like today, like, Hey, we have Hunt for October and Crimson Tide. And we only see one in theaters. I'm like, well, I'm seeing Humphrey October. And <laughs> there, there you go. Perfect. And then 
and before we go to Blockbuster, you have it on a uh, Blockbuster, and then you have pay per view. So like a little week, the week or two in between, I pay on pay per view before I can rent it. You know, Blockbuster. Right. Ebert gave this three out of four stars, which is a, a good rating. And he said that the movie is inviting comparison with the classic films because there's that scene where they're talking about run silent, run deep, and all that shit. But yeah. he says, uh, although it doesn't mention DOS Boot or The Hunt for Red October, it could have. This movie is in the same skillful tradition. Says, as the movie opens, the Alabama gets a new second in command, Lieutenant Commander Hunter. In an early interview with Ramsey, the old timer strikes a vaguely sinister note. Hackman is a master at seeming friendly while masking darker thoughts. This is the part I was talking about where during a discussion around the dinner table, Hunter makes the mistake of telling Ramsey, in my humble opinion, in the nuclear world, the true enemy is war itself. These words will haunt him. You have a large supporting cast. Now, Cobb, uh, George D'Azuzda, he is the officer who must side with Hunter or Ramsey and who places proper procedure higher than his opinion of either man's position. So I thought he was great. I think he was he was fantastic casting. Also, I agree with this scene. He says his best scene comes as he monitors a depth gauge that shows the Alabama sinking to whole crushing pressures. As it appears inevitable that the sub will be destroyed, he makes an interesting actor's choice. Instead of allowing his voice to grow tense, he flattens it into a disinterested monotone of resignation. I agree. I think that that makes it even more tense because he's just like, well, and I was thinking about that, right? Like, what the fuck are they going to do? They're 1,800 feet below the ocean surface. Like, (laughs) And then it says here, what's unique about Crimson Tide is that it doesn't offer clear-cut choices between good and evil. Hackman may be violating procedures, but perhaps he has good reason. Washington fearing to unleash war may leave his country unprotected. And then, of course, the ending is handled well as as well. So I like that. Uh, Dude, I thought it was a great film. I, I love Tony Scott films. I love the music. I love how these films just move, man. You know, some other movies may have had Denzel Washington with his family for like half an hour, but this isn't that kind of movie. We want to see him on the fucking sub, right? So what do you think Ramsey's going to do in his retirement? He'll probably be a, uh, an instructor at like the Naval War College or like civilian instructor for the submarine commander's course. What he should do is he should do what Captain Ronald Spears did in World War II. And what he did was he wrote down a very detailed list of his accomplishments during World War II and his failures. And then he would present that information, like getting into the Korean War and shit like that. But I think that Ramsey should notate, almost like in memoir fashion, all the things that took place during his event on that sub, and then use that to educate his fellow, you know, West Point folks. Yeah, I mean, a lot of retired COs, admirals will uh, stick around, like become teachers or instructors or help. Like, you know, they don't want to leave the Navy all the way. I mean, that's what I want to do when I get. I don't want to leave the Navy all the way. Contract company for the military. Ah, I see. And see, look at that. And you're you're smart because you're thinking about, oh, 10, 15 years down the road. So that's good. I try to. <laughs> okay. So you like the movie. And so what would be another movie that you would like to do that you both enjoy and that you would want to talk about? Like what's another military movie you'd be interested in? Maybe the great, maybe the Greyhound one. Yeah. Greyhound. Um, I like that movie. It's a, uh, I like World War II era movies and uh, like this is I do uh, sonar underwater, you know, underwater warfare. It's about escort, escort duties in the Atlantic and fighting against the German U-boat threat. I, I like it. It's pretty, pretty good movie. It was like it was action like the whole time. It was it's a short movie, but it's a, it's a good movie to watch. Well, man, I really appreciate a couple things. I appreciate you taking the time to conduct this slick flick pick review, and I also was very appreciative of your Apple Podcast comment. I saw Hoovastank, and I thought to myself, that tells me two things. This is a Hoovastank that also is familiar with the band Hoovastank. That we enjoyed in the 90s. 
Yeah. I'll tell you, man, here's, here's what's funny about, so this, this ties into the movie, but as far as being right and being wrong, I was once told that the lead singer for Incubus, uh, Brandon Boyd, I was told that he had a brother or a half brother that was the lead singer of Hoobastank. And that guy's name is Doug Robb. So I was told that once that they were brothers or they were somehow related. And so I was telling people that for years, whenever someone would talk about Incubus, I would be like, oh, by the way, did you know that Incubus, Brandon Boyd is related to the singer from Hoobastank? And they would be like, oh man, that's so cool. I'm like, yeah, I know. Well, I finally looked it up about three or four years ago and I was dead wrong. They're not really, <laughs> they weren't, they weren't related at all. And I thought to myself, God damn it. That sucks. <laughs> like I've told like 400 people that and I thought it was so clever and they're not related. So I was just so pissed off by that, that I was told wrong information. So the takeaway is if you're told something, even if it is an order by a superior officer, make sure you know your shit. Who did you prefer? Hoobastank or Incubus? Ooh, ooh. Probably Hoobastank, honestly. Okay, one song that I remember by Hoobastank was Wrong Direction, dude. That was a great song. Or is it Same Direction? Oh, same Direction. Oh, yeah, Same Direction. See, look at that. See? Oh. Same Direction. That's a great song. And to go back to something I said previously, they started in 1994. So they, they were activated in 1994, and they had a pretty long career technically all the way to the present day. Now, what's one of your favorite songs from Incubus? Pardon me. Oh yeah, dude. Pardon me. Oh yeah, yeah. dude. That's, yeah. that's, that's a good song. I also really like that song by them drive. And I love the warmth. The warmth is a great song too. Good stuff, man. But, and that's another thing is I could just talk music with you because we have a lot of overlapping music interests. I mean, whether it's Our Lady Peace, Fuel, Corn, I think you like Corn too. Yeah. I did a, I think in high school, I had to do I think it was in our English class, right? We had to do like a, com a comparative paper and I didn't know what to do. And I was, I literally did a comparative paper between the acoustics of Incubus versus the acoustics of Our Lady Peace, like how their acoustic songs sound. And I got A on it. And I bullshitted my way. I wrote that shit in one night. <laughs> well, that's the good thing about picking a song from an alternative rock band where the teacher's like 15 years older than you and probably yeah. doesn't listen to it. That's awesome. It'd be the month of October in this flick, but we're not hunting nor killing anything red but seeking elusive clarity and the emergency ambiguity message instead. In this floating, stale-aired coffin, there are places for Denzel to run, but nowhere to hide. There are only so many days you can remain sane within the sub's insides. To evade a direct hit, they'll steer starboard side and wide. But the only truth we receive straight and fucking plain is that Liponzin stallions hail from Spain. <laughs> I remain always your fellow fiend for films, your worthwhile cinephile, and you are my cinematic fanatics. Keep that popcorn fresh, unlike the air on that sub, or at least edible. For my next slick F-Stars pick, pick 22, Clown Chalk Outline, How to Scare a Millionaire, The Game, 1997. That's one of my favorite fucking films with Michael Douglas, directed by David Fincher. It is a mind fuck of a film. And if you haven't seen it, Adam, I recommend you watch The Game with Michael Douglas from 1997. It's a great film. All right. I will, I'll look into it. I think, I'm, I think I might have seen it. It's been a long time. Oh, dude. it's I've seen it a hundred times. I'll see it a hundred more before I'm dead. Now, <laughs> the CO of this slick ship, Falsetto, and XO of this sub boat ship, Adam, 